The views and opinions expressed in Cold and Missing are exclusively those of the hosts. All parties mentioned are considered innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Cold and Missing also contains adult themes and languages and is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. This is our third episode, and thank you so much for joining us, for listening in. Again, I'm completely blown away by the response from our audience that we're getting. Thank you to everyone who has followed us on Instagram. Thank you to everyone who has reached out, who has interacted with us, who's left reviews, who's followed us. Yeah, thank you for coming back (laughs) Yeah, for more episodes. Completely blown away by this response and totally humbled by it so thank you all so much yeah let's just let's just dive into this week's case let's do it so we're talking about corinne perry and this is a cold case from 1983 in creston iowa so creston is along the southern part of the state. It's near the Missouri border. In the 2000 census, Creston had less than 10,000 people, so it's a pretty small town. If you think of 10,000 people, that's smaller than a lot of college campuses, so pretty small. And according to the FBI, a person has a 1 in 36 chance of becoming a victim of either violent crimes or property crimes in Creston, Iowa. So it's kind of a rough spot of Iowa, it seems like. It has a higher crime rate than the rest of the state. Did you say property crime? Property crime. Like someone just stealing your home? Or like arson. Or like ruining your property. (laughs) Yeah, more along ruining your property. I think the only way they could steal it is if it had wheels. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes they do. Sometimes they do. Yeah. But I think those are the only homes that are prime for stealing. Yeah, you can't just yoink a home. You know what, though? Some log cabins, though, they, like, yank up and move around, so... I know, and, like, double wides. Yeah, so, you know what? You can't steal a home. You can't yoink a home. You can't yoink a home. All right, so, Corinne Perry, she was born August 28th, 1965, at an air base in Libya, where her father was stationed in the Air Force at the time. Her parents are Don Perry and Barbara Perry. At the time that she goes missing, her parents are divorced, and she lives with her mother in Creston, but her father is close by in Kent, Iowa, so he's not too far. Kent is a nearby town of Creston. Don and Barbara Perry, they have four daughters together, and this is a very blue-collar family, so Don, the dad, he works at the county water system, as he like does service there, and Barbara, the mother, she's a home health aide for the elderly. April of 1983, Corinne is just one month shy of her high school graduation, and at her high school, she loves acting. She was part of a lot of the shows at Creston High School. She was also part of the mime troupe that the high school still had a at that time. A thespian, you say. A thespian, yes. She was an actor, She and she had recently just won a scholarship. Wait, is this cold or missing? This is cold. <gasps> no... So she had just received a scholarship to Simpsons College in Indianola, Iowa, where she planned to double major in acting and psychology. I know we both know that person who has doubled majored in actor and psychology. You and me. Yeah. (laughs) I know I went into college being like, maybe I'll double major in psychology. So like... Let me get to the depths of myself to where I'm no longer a human being. Totally. 
So at the time she went missing, her speech and drama teacher uh, said this, quote, at first, most people didn't know what to think, but they're beginning to take it seriously. Corinne was very excited about the scholarship. There have been a lot of positive things happened to her at school. She's had an excellent year in winning speech and acting awards. And she actually won the scholarship by doing a monologue from Veronica's Room. Are you familiar with this play? Most likely. So it was written by Ira Levine, best known for writing Rosemary's Baby. So it's a dark play. Um, Hell yeah. Oh, I love Rosemary's Baby. In the play, a woman is lured to a home where she's held against her will and ultimately murdered. So that's the monologue that she did. Um, and it's it's really like a crazy play. Like I, I was reading a quick synopsis of it, and it's like this main character... She looks like somebody that the family had lost, like a sister or something like that. So they like trap her into like kind of relive this thing, and then they all murder her. I I yeah, I don't know. It was like a very dark play, though. Oh, that sounds like the movie Mother with Jennifer Lawrence. Oh, but that's like a whole. You're describing that movie right now. Well, there's also like an incest factor in the play, so maybe this is based off of that then. Like, this play is weird. Corinne is described by her classmates as intelligent, tall, striking, and someone who chose her friends carefully, which I thought was such an interesting way to describe somebody. Like, someone who chooses their friends carefully. Like, that's somebody who is, like, careful and cautious, you know? And Well, and at 17 or 18, mm -hmm. that's... I think that's very interesting to say about someone of that age. Yeah. I wasn't conscious of shit. No. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you want my MySpace? Have it. Here you go. <laughs> At the time she disappeared, she was five foot seven with strawberry blonde hair, gray eyes, a fair complexion, and weighing 115 pounds. So she is little. She's very small. Probably pretty strong, though. Probably strong. Totally. Her last known whereabouts. Sunday, April 17th, 1983. So again, this is just a month shy of her graduation. Corinne took the car that she shared with her mother at around 6.10 at night to head to the Highlander Laundromat. And the Highlander Laundromat is on Highway 34 in Creston. And it it's near like a lot of motels. So this is like a highway that runs from the suburbs of Chicago to Colorado, so it's a pretty long highway and it runs right through Creston. Three witnesses are at the laundromat and later are interviewed, so we know she gets to the laundromat, we know she's there, and we know she's washing her clothes. Corinne was drying her clothes, and so the dr according to witnesses and newspaper reports, this laundromat, like typically when I think of a laundromat, it's like all the washers are in one place and like the dryers are usually up against the wall, right? For this laundromat, the dryers were in a separate room from the washers, and a man was in the dryer room as well. This man has never been interviewed by police, and police really want to talk to this man. He's described as early to mid-twenties, six foot tall, medium-length brown hair, clean-shaven, aviator-style glasses with light frames, like light-colored frames, and he was wearing a tan jacket at the time. So Corinne leaves the laundromat at around 8.30. The man puts his clothes in a cardboard box and leaves right after Corinne. Witnesses don't remember the two of them talking or interacting at all. So those three other witnesses, um, they, 
was like a man and a woman, like a married couple there washing their clothes. And they never specify the third person, but I would assume it's kind of the attendant that works there. Yeah, maybe. That, that's who I would assume and there's, it is. Well, maybe because it's the 80s. There's no cameras. Right. So witnesses don't remember the two of them talking. Police want to talk to this man, but he's never tracked down. And this is the last time that Corinne is seen alive, is her walking out of the laundromat with this man walking out right behind her. Her mother, Barbara, begins to worry when Corinne doesn't come home. She and her other daughter start calling Corinne's friends, but nobody has seen her. Finally, at around midnight, it's 11.58 p.m., Barbara calls the police. Barbara truly thinks that they're going to find her out joyriding and just like hanging out with a friend or something. And they're going to be like, Hey, your mom wants you home. Like you're in trouble. You got to get home. But police don't find her and police treat her as a runaway, even though she has never done this before. And her parents say it's very unlikely at 1130 PM, the same night that Corinne disappears, her purse is found by a a runaway. I'm sorry. I just like need to go back to that. Why? What? She had plans after school, like after graduation. Yeah, like I said, like she had won the scholarship. She had yeah. been winning a lot of so awards. What, what she was running away from. Exactly. Her like being very successful in her life. Yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense. No. And she was very excited to graduate, which was happening in a month. Like she was about to walk, you know. Yeah. Did she have a partner or anything? It's not mentioned at the time if she had a boyfriend, if she was seeing anybody. So the cops were just like, oh, run away. We have decided that. Yeah. So they treat it like a runaway initially. So at 11.30 p.m., the night that Corinne disappears, her purse is found by a man sitting on a highway bridge over the West Platte River. But it'll take a week and a half for the man to turn it into police. So we'll come back to the purse, but her purse is found the night that she goes missing. Okay, so Monday, April 18th, 1983. So this is the next day after Corinne goes missing, but we're still kind of working through the night here. So just after midnight, her car is found at the laundromat. So it's still at the laundromat where she was last seen. And presumably she made it to her car because her clothes are folded neatly on the front seat. So the clothes that she had just washed are in the car, in the front seat. And even though despite this clue, the police will continue to treat it as a runaway at this point. So she doesn't have a car, she doesn't have her clothes, and she doesn't have her purse, but the police don't know this yet. On Monday, April 25th, 1983, so this is over a week after she's been missing, police assume she would show up or call her family or something. There's been no word from Corinne. And police acknowledge that young folks who run away are usually heard from within a week. And so the police decide to run her name and picture in the paper asking if anybody has seen anything. On Wednesday, April 27th, 1983, late that night, while her father is falling asleep, her father Don, he gets a phone call from a young woman who said, Corinne's nine miles north of Oscala, and immediately hangs up. Don thinks that it could have been Corinne who was calling but wasn't sure. The caller had a hard time pronouncing her R's, which is something that Corinne had trouble with as a child. I don't think this is Corinne. And yeah, I, this, I don't think this was Corinne. She's been doing speech and drama. Like, I'm sure she has worked that speech 
impediment out of like having trouble pronouncing her R's, you know, if she's winning speech competitions, like in, in the 1980s, they were very ableist. So if you had yeah. a speech impediment, they were going to be like, no, you lost. It's sad, but it m- may have just been like a really hopeful thought mm-hmm. on her dad's part, you know, or just like hoping that that was the last time I heard from her. Totally. Like that, that would, you know, I don't really know what goes on in people's minds with, with that type of loss. Yeah. You know, so. Totally. I would imagine anything is a sign. And if you're asleep. Mm-hmm. Um, police search the area indicated by the woman, but they find nothing. And so later on, it's not specified when this other phone call comes, but Don gets another phone call that's left on his answering machine. And the voice is difficult to understand due to static, and the caller is whispering. And all the caller is saying is, it's not easy, it's not easy, over and over again. Don was spooked by this call. Like, he said this one scared him. But no... It scared the Don? It scared Don, Mr. Don Perry. But no real answers on who made these calls, if they were just, like, horrible pranks. I don't know. On Thursday... April 28th, the person who found Corinne's purse comes forward and hands it over to police. And he comes forward because he read about it in the paper. So this is why it takes him a week and a half, roughly, to give the purse over to the police. Because the police were treating it as a runaway, and he had no idea this purse he found was from a missing teenager. The purse is found about seven miles away from the laundromat between Kent, Iowa, and Lenox, Iowa. So this is, like, on the way out of town. And even though it's going towards Kent, Iowa, which is where her father lived at that time, there was no reason for her to be going over there that evening or to be headed in that direction at all. And again, the car that she was driving was found at the laundromat. So she would have had to have gotten in a car with somebody to get that far away or walk that far. Police and family believe that the purse was placed as opposed to thrown from a car because fragile items in the purse were not broken. The purse was found like on a highway bridge, essentially like going over a river. Inside of her purse were glasses and makeup, and these are the fragile items that were not broken at all. So none of her makeup was busted or broken, which I'm thinking about like 80s makeup and like compacts, you know, that like shattered so easily. And her glasses. So those are the fragile items. Those weren't broken. Those were safe in her purse. Her driver's license was there. A phone card was there. And the only thing missing from her purse are photos of her friends, which according to her family, she treasured her photos of her friends. And those were the only thing missing from her purse. I wonder if, you know, she was abducted, Mm -hmm. if she somehow, like, if the window was rolled down, she dropped it as, like, a, come find me. Mm. As, like, a marker. You know, sometimes people do that. Yeah. They'll leave, like, a shirt behind or some sort of item in hopes of leaving a clue if someone comes looking. Well, the only thing that makes them think that it was like somebody stopped and placed it there as opposed to just drop it from a moving car. Well, it would have been thrown off the bridge. Or if it was if it was like just being discarded. So I agree with you. I think it was placed, but mm-hmm. I just don't necessarily think it was placed by just the abductor. Mm-hmm. I think it's possible that it was her too. It could be. I because I know how this story is. Oh yeah. Damn it. <laughs> Look at me playing detective and you already know. Yeah, I'm like, "Mm." 
<laughs> but that's pretty smart of me. Yeah. I but I don't I think it was placed there by whoever abducted Corinne. Okay. Well you know, so Yes. <laughs> <laughs> now with her glasses being in her purse, her family says that she could not function without her glasses. Her mother says she would have a splitting headache within thirty minutes if she didn't wear them or her contacts, and she did not have her contacts, she only had her glasses at this time. So after finding her glasses, police then suspect foul play. And that evening, they request the help of the DCI to investigate. And that's the Division of Criminal Investigation for the state of Iowa. So as soon as they find her glasses, her family's like, she can't function without her glasses. She can't see without her glasses. And she's going to have a migraine in 30 minutes if she's not wearing them. They're like, oh, well, maybe she's not a runaway. She'd probably take her glasses with her if she was a runaway. So now they are suspecting foul play and they call in the DCI. That Friday, the DCI officially joins the investigation. Could you clarify what the DCI stands for? Yeah, the Division of Criminal Investigation for the state of Iowa. Thank you. Yes. On Tuesday, May 3rd, police run the story in the paper, hoping to generate new tips and leads. But at this time, they're very honest, and they say they have no leads, but they're still trying to find the man who left after her. And at this point in the papers, they're treating him as a potential witness and not a suspect. So they're saying he's not a suspect, like we just want to talk to him. We just want to talk to him in hopes that he'll come forward. On Sunday, May 15th, 1983, the Creston police chief, is quoted in the paper as saying, in the 18 years I've been in police work, I've never had a case like this, end quote. Tuesday, May 10th, the family, along with Corinne's church, offers a $2,500 reward, but no leads. The next week on May 15th, Barbara, Corinne's mother, is interviewed in the paper, and She's terrified for her daughter, and this is what she's quoted as saying. I've continued to work. Those people need me too. They have been very thoughtful. I don't know what might happen. I really don't want to think of anything bad happening to her. They might harm her body, but they cannot touch her soul. That would be the worst thing that could happen to her. End quote. So I just like feel so bad for Barbara that she's working while her daughter is missing. Like something about that, like, and I know it happens to like missing people every single day. A loved one goes missing and like you have to work because that's the society we live in. Like you have to keep paying your bills, even though your life stopped that day, your loved one went missing. Like you are in this limbo. Like I just thinking of her like going to work just broke my heart. (laughs) It really did. I felt so bad for her. On Sunday, May 22nd, 1983, Corinne's classmates graduate without her. It had been debated for a while if they were going to postpone the graduation ceremony in hopes that she would come back, but they ultimately decided to go ahead with it. again, like, having to, quote, move forward, you know, it's like, keeps going, and that's... You're very right. It's it's heartbreaking. Yeah, it's cruel. It's like cruel for these families that their time has stopped, but time keeps moving forward. Like, mm-hmm. but they are always going to be stuck there until their loved one comes home, completely fine, and then they'll be able to move forward. But it's like no matter what, like anything outside of their loved one coming home, completely fine, and just being like, I got lost. Yeah, changes and you know potentially like ruins their lives forever. Totally. 
Tuesday, May 31st, 1983, police searched the West Platte River that runs under the bridge where her purse was found. So this is the third time that the police have searched this river, but they want to keep searching because the water levels have changed. So every time the water level kind of changes significantly, they go back in and search to see if anything has come up. And so they search basically from where her purse was found and downstream from there. Did they do the rakes, like, drag? It's not mentioned, but I imagine if they are searching the river, they are dragging it, at least sections of it, I would imagine. But yeah, they go basically from where her purse was found downriver to see if they can find her or any clues for her. So now we're entering the summertime. This is June of 1983. Corinne's family, along with their church, start a nonprofit called Corinne Perry Support Group Incorporated. And this is to handle the donations, to pay for private eyes, to store the reward fund. And they are helped in setting up this nonprofit group by the family of Johnny Gosh. A lot of our listeners may recognize that name. He's a very famous missing boy from Iowa as well. And he went missing September 5th, 1982. So this would have been six months roughly before Corinne disappeared. And he was delivering the newspaper when he was kidnapped. Is he from Creston? He's not from Creston, but he is close by. He's maybe an hour away in Iowa. Mm. And Johnny Gosh... His case will completely dominate the news. He becomes, like, the first kid on, like, the missing milk bottle. Like, that's kind of how he is, like, famous or so well-known. But then later, as well, another paper boy from Iowa is going to be kidnapped as well. So they really dominate the news. And Corinne just doesn't get as much media attention because these two paper boys really dominate the news. But Johnny Gosh's family does assist Corinne's family in getting this set up. And Corinne's support group, they're headquartered at the church and they have like a big bulletin board there with pictures of her, articles about her, and they also keep a vase of fake roses because just like the roses will never die, their hope will never die. And Barbara is quoted as, some weekends are horrible. That's when I try to keep very, very busy. If I stop, I end up crying on somebody's shoulder, end quote. And I'm like, girl, yeah, cry on somebody's shoulder. It's okay. So summer comes and goes, no real new leads, no um, no sign of Corinne at all. In the fall of 1983, police are expecting an influx of hunters during the hunting season. So police post Corinne's info in motels, hoping that the hunters could keep an eye out in the woods for any sign of her. I think that's kind of a smart move because you know these people are going to be in the woods and off of trails and like in the woods for hours. So yeah, like... And that's usually how people are found. It's just like someone's walking their dog. Mm -hmm. Someone's went hunting. Yeah. So in February of 1984, so fall comes and goes, Christmas comes and goes, Corinne is still... Oh, that would have been her freshman year. Yeah, so she would have started her freshman year at Simpson College, but that comes and goes. So now we're into February of 1984, and police are giving an update on the case, and they said they have sent her photo to truck stops, hospitals, law enforcement, and to kind of 
tailor it specifically to Corinne. They also send her photo to summer and amateur theaters in case she ran off to start her acting career, as well as optometrist offices because her family says her vision is so bad she would have to get glasses or contacts and her only pair of glasses were found in the purse. So if she is still alive and out there, she would need to get glasses at some point. So they send it to optometrist offices as well. I don't know why, but that like extra fact just like just like really like pokes at my like most tender spot. Her not having her glasses. I think because like I am this I am similar. You are too. Yeah. To be like in that situation and also to not be able to see. Yeah. And like possibly I'm sure adrenaline would maybe keep the pain down from in your head, but mm-hmm. to still not to not be able to read road signs like if you're still alive. Yeah, I mean, you know, glasses are a, a mobility aid. It's an aid, and it's yeah, like, if yeah. you don't have it, like, the world is very different and more difficult for you. You know, like... For sure. Yeah, because I'm always like, oh no, I forgot my glasses! And it could like, you know, I can't like watch a movie. I can't mm-hmm. watch a play. Like... I just feel I feel it in my bones. Also, I think maybe as someone who wears glasses, it's like if you don't have them, like you're instantly like, I don't have my glasses. Yeah, like you're like it becomes like a worry thing for you. You're like, yeah. I don't have my glasses. I don't. I gotta get my glasses. I like, worry about my glasses as much as I worry about like losing my phone. Yes. You know. Yeah. Completely. They're, this, they're on the same tier of worry. Yeah, like phone, keys, glasses, wallet. Like yeah. I need all of those to function. So we're still in February 1984. Police say that they have interviewed around 200 people at this point, and they don't know any more now than on the day she disappeared. That's what they say. And I'm like, that's, thank you for your honesty, but that sucks. Like, you don't know anything more than the day she disappeared? That sucks. The support group continues to meet every Thursday, and her mother remains optimistic that she'll turn up alive. So on Monday, September 17th, 1984, so this is fall of 1984, so she would have been a sophomore at this point in college, or starting her sophomore year. At 6 a.m., Barbara is awoken by a phone call from a man calling and asking for Corinne. Barbara says she isn't here right now, and when he starts to hang up, Barbara quickly asks how he knows her. And he says that he had seen her around Creston in the last few days, and then he hangs up. Police are unable to determine if it's a prank or if it's a legit sighting. So Saturday, November 3rd, 1984, at 11 a.m. in North Lenox, two boys are in a heavily wooded area pheasant hunting, and they find a human skull and other bones scattered along a dried stream bed. And this location where they find the skull and the bones is about 100 yards from an abandoned Burlington Northern Railroad track and a quarter of a mile north of a gravel road. So it's very heavily wooded and very rural, abandoned, not a lot of folks out there. This location is also about a mile away from where her purse was found, but it's Mm. upstream from the bridge where only downstream had been searched before. That's still bizarre to me that they were like, we'll just start from right here. Like, yeah, that's bonkers to me. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but I don't know if this is just like, we're living in the year 2022 and we know like, okay, you got to search both directions in a stream now, not just downstream. Like, (laughs) well, I don't, if I took my earring out and dropped it to the left of me, I would look at the entire floor surrounding me, Mm -hmm. not just one side of it. Right. Not just to the left side. (laughs) Yeah, but 
Police never searched this area originally. So the bones are Corinne's, and only her skull, hip, leg, and neck bones are found. Police searched the area around where her body was found for additional bones, personal items, clues, and clothing, but nothing is found on this day. And that evening, police officially confirmed that it's Corinne via dental records. Mm. She has been found. On Monday, November 5th, 1984, state and local law enforcement begin an intense investigation to see if they can determine the cause of death. Ultimately, due to the incomplete skeleton and amount of decomposition, a cause of death could not be determined. Police return to the woods to continue to search for clues. And on this day, the police will find clothes connected to Corinne, but the condition is so poor, no additional information can be gathered. According to the newspaper, they had been underwater and exposed to the elements. So, like, they had just been... There was no evidentiary value to them. How did how did they know they were hers? I think it's the clothes she was last seen in. So they had a description of what she was wearing. So there was some sort of confirmation that happened that they were hers. That they were her clothing. Yes. yes. Okay. Yeah. But there's no evidence that can be collected from them. Sure. And there's no clues to indicate how she died. So, you know, there's no bullet wound in the skull. There's no, you know, in her clothes, not that I'm aware, but, you know, no stab, puncture, blood. Was there any indication of dismemberment? But you would need more. Yeah, you would need bones everything. To... Yeah, you would need the complete skeleton to see. You know, are there saw marks on bones? Oh, are God. there that kind of thing? You know. So this is the same week her body is found. Police continue to search for more of her bones to try to help determine the cause of her death. The bones police do have are in rough shape, and they say police are going to continue to test them. But I don't know what they're testing them for. What results come from them? Never reported. Barbara is devastated by the news, but she is glad to finally know where Corinne is. And she 100% believes foul play is involved. And she says, quote, she wouldn't have gone out and laid in a ditch, end quote. And then police say from the beginning they have considered the disappearance an abduction. But we know they're liars. This is a lie. They're saying this in the newspaper. Lies, lies, Liza Minnelli, more lies. Lies. Like, what's a keeping up with the Kardashian clip? Like, you liar. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, that's how I feel when I read this. I'm like, you are lying through your teeth. You did not. You, you did not. You talked about her being a runaway. Yeah. Like, you talked about it. You said, you acknowledged that, like, oh, usually we hear from runaways by now, so we'll, well, I guess we'll look into it a little bit more. Like, don't, don't play the this lies game. you tell. Don't try to come at the end and say, well, we always considered don't it Don't invite the devil into my home with your lies. Don't invite the devil into my podcast with your lies. It's don't. a liar. A DCI agent, Sam Swain, is quoted as saying, if we get any physical evidence that would indicate a cause of death, we'll consider ourselves lucky, end quote. So they do not know how she died. There's not enough bones to figure that out, and the bones they do have give no indication of how she died. After her body is found, her high school starts a drama scholarship in her memory. And then, truly... That's the last we really hear about Corinne. In 2009, the DCI establishes a cold case unit, and Corinne's case is assigned to the unit. But other than that, no arrests have ever been made. No suspects have ever been named. And 
her parents, Don and Barbara, her dad, I believe, passed away in 2001, and Barbara passed away in 2017, I believe. So they so they died not knowing. So they both have died not knowing. But she does have three sisters still who, you know, every now and then will meet with the news and try just bring her case up again and keep her case alive. Like, her sisters want answers to what happened to her. Her sisters has a daughter that apparently is like a spitting image of Corinne and looks just like her. So the family does like... Oh, she get the, the ginger hair? Yeah, like uh-huh. she has a daughter that she says is like a spitting image of Corinne's and she is quoted as saying like, I get to see my little sister all the time now. And I think... <laughs> Yeah, like, that's... That's really sweet. That's really sweet, yeah. But, like, they... You know, she still wants answers. She still wants to know what happened to her sister. Personally, I think that the man that followed her out holds the key to everything. Yeah, like... Even if he didn't do it, he saw something, because her car did not leave the laundromat. My brain is thinking that, Mm -hmm. and the other big thing... That's the yelling from the back of my mind is that big highway that like mm-hmm. runs from Chicago to Colorado, like mm-hmm. through there. There, there's got to be like randos who fly through little towns like that, and where they're just like able to. Yeah, and the laundromat was near like a bunch of roadside motels, so there is a possibility that it was somebody passing through that maybe like saw this girl in the laundromat and was just waiting. Yeah, for and her. I'm assuming maybe it was that guy who. Maybe he's the... Yeah, the guy in the laundromat? Yeah. Yeah. He holds the key, whatever it is. He had to have... If he did not do it himself, if he did not cause current to disappear... He was the only one out there within, like, five minutes of... Right. And if her car never leaves that laundromat, she had to have gotten into a car with somebody. So, like, he... If he did not do it, that man... I don't think she got into a car. Yeah. Willingly, I assume. She would have needed a car, though. Like, yeah. So that man, if it was not him that did it, he could have seen a car pull in. He could have seen a car pull out. He could have seen somebody speeding by. Like, you know, he could have seen something. But at this point, unless he was, like, somebody just passing through town and, like, not, has no reason to think about it again, like with all this news, like, when she disappeared, when they finally started running her name in the paper and everything, you would think he would come forward and say, yeah. I saw her. I'm that man. But maybe he is a traveler and was out the next day and, like, didn't come back to Creston for a year. And at that time, the case had died down. And, you know, Johnny Gosh was still being, like, Johnny Gosh was the big national case out of Iowa. Corinne never really left Iowa, you know? Yeah. Looking at all the newspapers, they all come from Iowa. There was only, like, one from Minnesota that covered her disappearance. But other than that, all the surrounding states, they didn't have anything. In the newspaper archives, maybe there is something that's just not listed online, but... So anyone who knows anything about Corinne Perry's disappearance in 1983 in Creston, Iowa, they are encouraged to call the DCI at 515-725-60110 or the Creston Police Department at 641-782-8402. And sources for today's podcast comes from NBC News, The Dispatch, 
Des Moines Register, The Gazette of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, Sioux City Journal, and The Courier. But that's it. That's that's Corinne Perry. She is a cold case. She deserves some answers. Thank you all again for listening. Join us next week. If you are enjoying what you're listening, and if you have cases that you want covered, if you have a loved one that is missing or a cold case in your life that means a lot to you, please reach out to us. We'd love to cover those and put more eyes and ears on those stories. So you can email us at coldandmissing at gmail.com or message us on our Instagram, which is at coldandmissing. Please, if you are enjoying this, like and subscribe, tell your friends about it, share it. That's the ultimate goal. We want other people to hear this because somebody knows something somewhere and we just don't know who it is. So get it to everybody. That's all. Have a great week, y'all. Have a lovely week.